If you have your uh, Bible with you this morning, maybe you can turn to 1 Peter for the scripture reading. 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In verse 12, Peter continues, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And as he quotes, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Skipping down to chapter 5, verse 5, uh, verse five it says this, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, and we desire deep down to be remade, to be redeemed, to be lifted up, to be changed. We all are painfully acquainted with the fact that we're not who we wish we were, that we pretend as much as, uh, as we authentically live, and, and that for all our works, all our trying, all our effort, all our masquerading, there's, there's something in us that only you can speak to, only you can grow, only you can heal so it's, it's, it's that kind of real part that we want to bring to you this morning. We don't want to hide and we don't want to put walls between us and you. We don't want to be just protected. We want to be vulnerable. We want to be naked with the hope and the desire and the trust that you love us, you care for us, and that your grace can do something amazing with us as we grow up into your son's likeness pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little bit of context just to kind of where I want to go this morning. Um, about a decade ago, I was reading, reading and reading and reading through Scripture. I was getting a, a master's in 
philosophy of religion and ethics. And you think ethics, you think kind of boring or academic, um, but really began to wrestle with what ethics is. And, and an interesting side note is the word morality was Cicero's way of translating into to the Latin, the Greek word ethics. Um, and so morality, we kind of take it very narrowly in the church or kind of um, currently. You know, morality is really just about me and my morality. It's very individualistic. Morality, however, originally was, was, a, was ethics. It was the whole uh, relationship with our, our fellow man. So it, uh, morality had a real social ethic component from the very beginning. Um, but so you think, you know, what, what's really going on here? And this is just some stale academic discipline. And as I was reading scripture more and more and more, kept seeing these themes emerge that just didn't seem like they were being talked about in the circles that I was running. Themes of love, themes of justice um, that are threads literally on every page of scripture. There's a, a justice Bible that was put out. Um, in conjunction with World Vision, and I forget who the publisher was. But what they did is they highlighted all the verses that have to do with the poor and, and with justice and those kinds of things. And you can kind of flip through the Bible, and it just pops out at you. You're like, oh, my gosh. There's only one book of the Bible that doesn't have anything outlined. You know which book it is? Song of Solomon. It's kind of funny. Um, but so this is about a decade ago, and I'm just just really struggling with this and began to try to wrestle with what is love. I did a whole independent study with a psychologist um, at Rosemead School of Psychology on, on what is love. And I remember towards the end of that semester coming into the staff that I worked with and saying, hey, for Christmas, what if we just uh, did a Christmas tree lot and kind of reached out to the community that way and, and then offered with single moms uh, or widows or whatnot to go um, set up the Christmas trees or put lights on on their houses for them and and what if we just offered to serve that way and everybody loved it and then they were like okay but how do we how do we close the deal on that and get them into the church and grow the church and I was like let's just love on them and then like let the Holy Spirit see where that goes and and there and so the conversation went for about 10 minutes and then everyone was like yeah we just don't know how it's going to grow the church and that was the end of it I remember kind of just quietly scooting my chair back and, and pondering and just going, how, how has love become a means to an end without us really realizing? And I wrestled with all these things. And it wasn't that love was higher than or we needed to focus on it more than, say, Christian witness or evangelism. What I began to find was in the church I was at, these two were seen as in competition, and the more you focused on love, it meant the less you focused on evangelism. And so the, the kind of converse was the more we need to focus on evangelism and not talk about love and, and kind of get it this way. And, and I began to really wrestle with why, why, why are they put on this teeter-totter? If they're both commanded in Scripture, if they're both a part of our calling as Christians, why... Why do we not try to get an A in English and an A in math? Well, why do we see them as in competition? And I really began to wrestle with a lot of these things. And so the, the whole last 10 years for me has, has included just this wrestling with what does it mean 
um, for, for justice, what, what does that really look like for the Christian and, and for our calling to be just people and those who are made just by the grace of God? Unjust people who fall short by the grace of God being able to stand next to a just God as if we're just. And so in some sense, we're being made just. And what do just people do? Well, just people do just things, right? And so I've been trying to wrestle with that. So this week was an interesting week for me. I turned in a manuscript um, on a book about justice. And um, I'm still trying to, you know, scratch my head and figure out what Thomas Nelson was thinking by giving me permission to, to do a book. But the verse that really comes home with that for me is a verse in Habakkuk and then it's picked up in Galatians. It's in Romans too. And we know it, we're very familiar with it as a phrase, the righteous will walk by faith or the righteous will live by faith. And if you go back to the King James Version, you see that that verse was rendered, the just will live by faith. And what, what the difference is, is it's the same Hebrew word and, and in the New Testament, the same Greek word. And back in those days, just justice was a broader word. And in some sense, it's become a more limited word in, in the English cultures. It's justice is more about either from a cultural standpoint, criminal justice. And from a theological standpoint, it's more about the cross and kind of salvation, justification, justified, uh, those kinds of things. Um, and so the word righteous is kind of the word we take as the more general word. And so that, that same Hebrew word, same Greek word that, that was translated to just will live by faith, we typically render now the righteous will live by faith. But by putting them both on the table, you begin to understand what the Hebrew and the Greek was really getting at was this idea that, that those who have a right relationship with God or, or a right relationship with others, those who care about having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others, those who desire to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others, necessarily will live by faith. Because if you're not aiming your whole life, your time, your energy, your gifts, your talents, your smarts at maximizing yourself, if you're not aiming at yourself, but you're really submitting and laboring to bring about a certain kind of relationship with God or hungering for that, and laboring to bring a certain kind of relationship with your neighbor about um, to the detriment in almost, uh, in some sense, of yourself, then, then who's going to take care of yourself? Who's going to make sure that this seemingly paradoxical kind of lifestyle will work itself out, that it'll actually kind of um, zero out at, at the bottom, that the equation will work? Like, how does that really happen, right? It's counterintuitive. And, and the answer to that is, it's faith, it's trust, it's believing the promises of God when God says, if you live this kind of way, the right kind of way, and you don't see everything as a, a competitive particularity, that, that everything is in competition with yourself, and if you, if you give and care more about the community or, or shalom or goodness, then, then I will take care of you. I will honor that. I will bless that. I will, I will be there for you. I will give the grace that you need. So it's the promise of God that makes that, that work out, you see. So if I'm caring more about the things outside of myself, I have to live by faith. If I've got kind of a, a thin 
religiosity that in some sense is designed to maximize me above other people. Because, you know, that's where the Pharisees were at, and it's a danger that we can always fall into too, that religion becomes a part of the game we play to grow ourselves. Um, I, m- I remember one day feeling like God gave me this mental picture, and it was, um, it was like I was sitting there playing a video game, and Jesus like walked to the door and was standing at the door and was like, really? And all of a sudden, it was like I realized what had happened is I'd taken out um, secular, humanist, American culture game out of the Xbox and plugged in Christian, Republican, conservative, church game into the Xbox and, and was, was working my way towards the high score. And all I'd done is switched out the game, but it was still a game, a mechanism by which to try and bring glory to myself. Does that make sense? That's what the Pharisees were doing. Religion was their, was their strategy for, for making themselves great. And, and so the righteous will walk by faith. If we take that the wrong way, the wrong kind of righteousness, self-righteousness, it's, it's real easy to say I'm righteous and, oh, I'm walking by faith because I'm being religious, but I'm not really trusting God for anything because I'm not really leveraging anything. And I think when we begin to put just along there and begin to realize right relationship with God and others, and this is a bad investment strategy. Christianity is a bad investment strategy. If you are are like really risk averse, I feel so sorry for you because Christianity must drive you crazy because it is is the ultimate form of throwing risk... um, management out the window it's it's you're going to come and you're going to die to your selfish agenda right now and you're going to grow up into christ as you follow him in obedience and discipleship i mean it's it's a whole i mean it's a horrible strategy for investing your life and and so when we begin to understand that we begin to understand the faith part right like, man, if I'm doing really silly stuff by the world's standards, I'm, I'm spending all this time and energy that I could be um, putting into stuff that would, would bring me things that I could um, put on savings or on ice for a rainy day or for my kids down the road or whatever it is. Instead of that, I'm out here just giving it up. How's this going to work? And I really think the answer is it's, it's faith that... You're trusting that the God who promised that this was the right way and that it would work because he would insert himself into the equation and give you the grace you needed or take care of the issues that you needed help with. That faith is really what makes it balance out. And so the interesting thing is um, I, I turned in this manuscript this week. It was on justice, and I've got another manuscript that's due in a year. And you know what I want to write it on? Why I, why I think I was stupid to agree to two manuscripts <laughs> and I need therapy because um, this just doesn't fit my personality like being in the weeds trying to work on grammar. Um, I feel like what I want to do the second book on is on faith because I really feel like there's two sides of a coin here, that justice and putting it out there and love and, and witness and the whole 
thing there that's counterintuitive. Um, that the other side of that coin that makes it work is, is fa- trust. It's faith. It's not believing that God exists. It's believing that the God who exists is big enough and that his character is fixed enough that he will take care of me when I put myself out there. And so I kind of feel like this next year, one of the things I want to launch into is are a lot of uh, sermon series going into some books of the Bible and some different angles on, on topics that really get at the practical side of what does it mean to live by faith. That's kind of where I, I see the next year um, going. And, and the first thing, the first principle in that is this. Um, spiritual growth, right? The first principle of spiritual growth that I think I would want to share is that all books on spiritual growth are in some sense the problem. So I've thought about maybe writing an introduction to that book a year from now saying this book is the problem. And then I'm kind of like, that'd be cool. And then I was like, I don't know if a publisher would allow me to do that because maybe like the only books that would sell then are like, you know, the one my mom buys and then like the five I give away for Christmas for like three years in a row, you know, <laughs> like. But I, I think that we've fallen into a trap when it comes to spiritual growth and faith and understanding and knowing God. And the trap is this, that what I need is, is to ruminate on it more. What I need, what I need are, are more insights, I just don't have enough information or it hasn't just clicked yet. So I I need to read more books or it just feels so big or hard. I just need a formula. I need, I need like the steps. I need to, I need, I just need to, what I, you know what I'm saying? I just need the practical check boxes that I can check. And so we, we get in this rat race of running the treadmill of devouring and consuming more and more and more and more religious material. Because somehow in all that religious material is going to be the answer of how it is I'm going to grow spiritually and begin to bear this fruit that I long to bear in my life, the fruit of faith and of virtue and of having the right kind of heart and disposition and character. And, and, and if I consume more and more formulaic kind of packaged spiritual growth material, somehow that's going to produce what it is I was made for, to be more like Christ and to be more with God. And I think it, that, that, at its core, is completely wrong. And so I want to, out of... First Peter, spend the rest of the morning just talking about how does this relationship, the intimacy and the closeness with God really come about and how do we really begin to grow up into a, uh, a degree of Christ-likeness that I think we all long for. So I've got six things in this passage I read. And so if you want to look with me, chapter 4, verse 7, we'll kind of just start with the first one. And... Uh, Six things to point out here. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. One of the things we don't have a stomach for in the church 
is complexity with regard to theology. Complexity with regard to theology. We want our theology really, really simple. What we want is theology for dummies. And the problem with theology for dummies is that it really doesn't um, give us the clearest picture of theology that we can possibly get. 101 version of theology is like my three-and-a-half-year-old coloring on a coloring page. She gets the colors in there, right? And you kind of get the picture, but it's really messy, isn't it? It's, in its simplicity, it's really messy. Now, my, my uh, 10-year-old? <laughs> my 10-year-old. <laughs> Like, it's really gotten good with drawing. And, uh, and there's a lot of specificity and complexity. But then when you stand back, you're like, that's a more accurate picture. One of the good things that heresy has done in the history of the church is heresy forces orthodoxy to get more complex and clear. It forces uh, theologians to make finer distinctions and in making those finer distinctions there's greater and greater clarity does that make sense so 401 is more accurate than 101 as I'm trying to say but what we want is 101 and the problem with 101 is we we often get hyper gospel focused without really understanding the gospel now what I mean by hyper gospel focused is um, it's Jesus does it all, and then, and then that's it. We just stop there. I do nothing. I can do nothing. I'm never going to do anything. And, and then we kind of miss this dynamic relational quality of the, the fact that the good news was Jesus coming in and working in our lives and through our lives and with us in terms of this, that it's a dance in some sense. And, and what I mean by that is, Peter says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We're not allowed to talk about anything we do covering over sins in 101 theology. But in 401 theology, we begin to realize that Jesus over and over again says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the one who loves much is the one who's been forgiven much. And that there's this dynamic relationship between forgiveness and love that we receive and forgiveness and love that we give. And the fact that we're able to continue to love and forgive allows God to continue the dance with us rather than stopping out, hitting pause on the music player and saying you're getting the dance wrong we need to come back to the commands I gave you to love your neighbor to love others to forgive as I forgave you you're not getting it right and let's try this again hit play on the music and the dance and ah you, you just ah pause I commanded this simply. I bowled all the Ten Commandments and all of the law and the prophets into this one command for a reason 
Because this is the heart of the dynamic of what's going on with us as we walk forward into this life. This is, this is what grace is doing as we move together. Let's try again, because as I forgive you, it's able to move through you and change you. Grace isn't just for you. Grace, like a fireman's brigade, is a bucket you get, and what's left over you're able to give. And, and if you give grace, there's always more that you can receive from me because it's, it's dynamic, community, unity-based thing that's going on. And so, so we got to get this. That's 401 gospel talk. And 101 gospel talk doesn't understand that. And so we begin to cut off that kind of language like this. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We talk about love. Why? Well, love's a good, we all know love's a good thing. Love each other. Ah, because I know it's in Scripture. You know, I mean, I mean, we don't ever say something like, you know what's really cool about love is that even if you don't feel like it, there's still some really cool motivation to do it because as you love, it actually covers over a multitude of sins. It, it, it actually helps grow you more and more into the person that you're supposed to be. And it, it actually has, in some sense, a washing effect in your life that God's grace works and moves and continues in your life as you continue to forgive and give grace and love others. And, and there's a really cool motivation that even if you don't feel like it, because love is not ab about a feeling here. Love is sacrifice, it's a decision, it's, it's giving, it's pouring out, it's a choice. And, and we, we miss talking about love as one of the ways we find intimacy with God and one of the ways we grow spiritually into a greater degree of Christ-likeness. It's exciting to love because you cannot grow without love. And when you love biblical love, sacrificial love, you cannot help but grow. Let me say that again. All the silly books we read, forgive me if you're an author and you wrote a silly book, okay? but all the silly books that we read will not grow you if there is no love in your life. And if you love, even if you cannot read, you cannot help but grow. There is something dynamic going on here with love. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's a part of your relationship and your growth um, and your discipleship. That is exciting to me because you want to know why? I don't always feel like love. I know that, I really know that's hard for you to believe. But I don't always feel it. But I'm smart enough. And I know good news enough when I hear it. That I'm always excited for what love can do and does do if I can choose my way into it regardless of my feelings. Is that good news? That's, I love 401 theology because it gets me so much more excited than like um, 
one-on-one theology. I was going to say theology. I have theology for dummies. You know what I mean? One-on-one theology. Second one, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why why does he say grumbling here? It's really simple. Um, Think of when you're tired and somebody knocks on your door. Don't knock on my door. Email me. This isn't, this isn't cool. This is a fake smile that you're seeing. I don't want you here. Um, that, I mean, I, I'm talking about you guys, not me, right? I'm, <laughs> this, this is why it's in Scripture, because we don't like to be inconvenienced and to truly give up your time, your space, your focus, your energy to hold somebody else, to provide hospitality for somebody else. Uh, it, is a, it is a choice to give your life away, and we don't like to give our lives away. There's a, there's a very real possibility of grumbling when we go to give our lives away. And, and so Theology 101 says what? Offer hospitality. It's what you're supposed to do. Offer hospitality. You know, um, in African culture and in some Asian cultures, like, they do this so much better than us. Be African, be Asian, offer hospitality. That's Theology 101. And it, and it, it makes you feel guilty, and you, just, you still grumble, but you push the grumbling further down. You know, and, and we have layers of being able to push things down, don't we? You know what I'm talking about? We just hide the grumbling even more under more of an ought or an obligation that I should be offering hospitality, but we don't really get excited about offering hospitality with with just all of that pressure. Peter says this, each one of you should use, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received. That means you have gifts. You have gifts that God has given you. Everyone here has gifts that God has given you. Take the Strengths Finder test by the Gallup organization. One of the best things that, that, that you can do. I use it in marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling. I love it because there's like 37 or something like that gifts that they identify, strengths. And, and they're things that you never really realize are strengths, but then you're reading it, you're like, That's, that is a strength. Being a nerd actually has its value. You know, like there's one in there. Um, I just, I, I just got into dangerous water. I, I'm, you know what I'm trying to say, even though I offended some of you. Um, I'm trying to say things that we don't always treat as if they have, like, this strong giftedness, like music gifting or leadership gifting or something that's very visible. You begin to look at that, and you're like, man, there are a whole lot of different kinds of strengths, and these all play a different kind of role. And God has given each one of us different strengths and different gifts. And there's nobody here that does not have a gift. And Peter is saying, use whatever gift you have received to serve others. That's the hospitality part. It's serving. And then listen to this. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. 
Theology 401. See, Theology 401 realizes that all grace really comes from God and, and ultimately at the cross it gets its, its whole drive engine and, and focus and thrust, okay? But that grace is something that continues daily as we move forward into life. The, the reformers had, um, the Catholic Church had a whole lot of different means of grace. The reformers narrowed it down to a couple different kinds of means of grace, but they still had them. The modern church doesn't understand the language of means of grace, meaning ways in which the grace of God is literally dispensed into people's lives or into my life in kind of an everyday fashion. Theology 101 knows we get grace from the cross. Theology 401 knows that grace lives and it moves and it moves into other people's lives through us often and that in doing that, we're becoming conduits and channels of the grace of God into the community. And if we're conduits of the grace of God, that means the grace of God is, is vitally moving through my life. I'm... I'm not like a kind of a, a pond that, that takes grace and, and there's no outlet and everything stagnates. I'm a lot more like a, a stream or a sprinkler where the grace of God comes into my life, moves through me, and then waters out and blesses other people as that grace gets dispensed. And I get to be a part of that process of grace moving into this world. I can get excited about that. Even if I don't want you to show up at my door, even if I don't think I have the energy, I can offer hospitality because I have gifts that have been given to me that, that I can use to bless you or to nurture you. And as I do that, I'm administering the grace of God. I get to be a part of the gospel as it works itself out out in the church I can live by faith why because even though giving seems like a bad investment there's a paradoxical reality that as we give we will receive grace ample to meet what it is we're, we're, we're passing out that God will somehow bless us and use us and move through us and that will grow us and that will, will lead to kind of a participation in the good news, a participation in God's love and his grace that leads to intimacy. And so you don't need more checklists. We don't just need formulas. We need to trust that God is so big that we can jump off the cliff, give our lives away, administer the gifts he's given us, knowing that as we do, we become participants in the gospel. We get to experience grace in a way we would never experience grace if we're on the sidelines. There's motivation to serving in Christian community. There's motivation to it. And we've, we always want to, with Theology 101, cut off the motivation because we think it poisons it with self. And we, we, gotta, we gotta understand when we come over here to 401 that there's two kinds of self. There's the kind of thing I can do that I can get excited about I myself can get excited about that leads to unity and health of the community. 
And there's a kind of selfishness that I choose myself at the expense of the community and it rips community apart. Do you understand the distinction? There are things that I can take joy in that actually bring about goodness. And those things are okay to get excited about. And then there's a kind of selfishness that I choose at the expense of community. There's a kind of happiness I can get excited about where the community is benefiting, where people are growing, where shalom and goodness and and justice exist. And there's a kind of happiness or pleasure I can choose at the expense of community. Theology 101 says all happiness, bad. It's it's messy. We don't know how to untangle it. Anything that, that has self involved, bad. We don't know how to untangle it. So we get left with just the action or the duty. Theology 401 looks at Hebrews and it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There's a kind of happiness and a kind of self that is not corrupt, but is the right and fitting and appointed end for our acts of obedience and our acts of discipleship. We can no longer, uh, I mean, I mean, Hear me now if, 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 if you haven't been hearing me. We can no more separate the good kind of happiness or joy from the right kind of action as you can the smell of a rose from a rose. Do you understand what I'm saying? Being able to rejoice in good and take pleasure in good is a fitting and appropriate end that, that comes out of the action itself. We can no more separate it than we can the smell of a rose from a rose. And so when we begin to understand theology, we can say, uh, I get to be a participant in what God is doing. And as I do, I become a conduit of God's grace, a means of grace that God uses as he moves in other people's lives. And as that happens, I'm joining God. I'm participating with God. I get an intimacy with God. I grow up into that. And that's so different than just consuming more spiritual growth books. Let's continue. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Do you guys see it there, the the distinction? As I speak truth about the gospel and about God and about Christ and about what what is, about truth, which is absolute, when I I speak, I should speak as, as, as if I'm speaking the very words of God. There's a permission there that if I surrender and I'm humble and I yield myself to God, I can speak with a kind of authority that I could never speak with otherwise. And not only that, I mean, you might be like, man, I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't talk. (laughs) I don't, I don't speak. That's not my thing. 
Same thing is true of serving. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength of God. So God is going to supply the words. Matthew 19, Jesus says, don't worry. Someday you're going to be hauled into court in front of magistrates. Don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it because at that time you'll be given what to say because it will no longer be you speaking but the Spirit of God speaking through you. Don't worry about what you're going to have to say in that time. If you're close with God, if you're serving God, God will give you the words. Your family member that doesn't believe in Christianity, that's skeptic, that's watched, um, you know, religiosity too much, right? What is that? Is it Bill Maher? Is it Bill Maher? No. Who, did, who wrote that? Bill Maher. That's just poison, right? But you're watching it and you're like, who, like, he spends 30 minutes in a trucker church in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, Oh, who goes to a trucker church in the middle of nowhere? Like, that's not Christianity. And who goes to a Jesus theme park in Florida? Like, I, I, look, at the, I look at that documentary and I'm like, man, I got a problem with that too, you know? But it, it gets in your head and you're just like, you want to throw all of Christianity out. And, that's, and, and if that's your relative or if that's even you, it's like, or that wouldn't work if that's you. But if, if, if you know someone like, don't worry about what you're going to say, just trust God in that relationship and faithfully move in there knowing that God will supply you. God gives you words. You can reach out for that and be a part of what God would say into that situation. It's no longer you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The same thing with serving. I don't know what to do with this. This message is just jacked up. Or, uh, this, not message, this marriage, it's jacked up. God, but you've got me right here on the fringe of it. I don't know what to do with it. God will give you his power and his strength, his ability to speak into the messiest of situations. And we get to know by acquaintance. We get to to experience that intimacy as we yield and submit ourselves to be used by God. And then we get to grow up in our understanding and our maturity and and our discipleship of being the kind of people that can co-labor with God. And listen to this. Not only that, but God is praised through Christ Jesus in that. God gets the glory. There's worship in me witnessing, in me sharing the words about God, in me serving, in me trying to build up. There is worship in that. God is praised through Christ Jesus. You want to experience intimacy with God? You want to experience the fullness of worship? There's motivation in that, right? We can get excited about running out into this world and and sharing verbally and serving with our energy and physically. And if we cut that motivation off, what are we doing? We're, We're cutting off. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. Let's move fast here. A couple more. It says this, but rejoice in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. Rejoice when you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Be with him. Join with him. Be related in Christ through his sufferings. Go through it together because when it's over, you get to share in the joy and in the glo- when his glory is revealed. And if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, 
you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Go talk about Jesus to people. Go speak truth to people that might not really want to hear it, but they actually do need to hear it. Go be overt about your identity. You don't have to hide it. Just don't be obnoxious about it, right? Don't, don't be like a weird Christian because those two words don't, I mean, you know what I'm saying? They don't have to belong together. Weird is an adjective that has nothing to do with Christianity. Christian is an adjective. That weird Christian doesn't help. Just be a Christian. But do it with confidence. And make it known why you are the way you are, why you believe the way you do, and, and love people through that and serve people through that. And if you're insulted because of it, what does it say? Um, if, you, if you're insulted, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I can't think of a better, more condensed phrase for spiritual growth than you are blessed and the spirit of God rests on you. It's what happened when Jesus got baptized. You remember that great passage? It's like the spirit of God descended and rested on Jesus. And and then God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's blessed. We're never more close to the heart of God being blessed and having the Spirit of God wrestling. We're never going to grow more than being in that sweet spot, the crosshairs, where, where God blesses us. The God, the maker of the, of, of the heavens and the earth, blesses us, baptizes us, sets us apart for himself, honors us, and pours his Spirit out on us. There's no checklist that can grow you spiritually com- compared to that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that, well, how does that happen? That happens by me getting excited about being a witness for Christ. Not masquerading, not hiding it, not putting it deep down, going through the actions, but being a witness for Christ. Let's move um, fast. Number five, we go all the way down to chapter five, verse five. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he, that he may... I, I, sorry, it's not capitalized and I just had to go through a whole manuscript and capitalize he when it referred to God and this, I'm now wondering if I needed to do that. Um, is it capitalized in your Bible? No, this is actually an existential crisis I'm going through right now. Um, is, it, is it capitalized in your Bible? It's capitalized in your Bible? Dude, NIV is just an ungodly <laughs> pagan Bible. All right. Um, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself that he may lift you up. This, I think, is the most subversive truth about spiritual growth that exists in Scripture. The way to go up 
is to go down. The way to go up is to go down. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene, said it well. He just looked at Jesus and said, all right, I got the platform. I'm the dude. Everybody's looking to me. I'm on the most wanted posters. My time has come, though. He must become greater. I must become less. Um, How much of, of your praying is aimed at trying to get God to help serve the plans, the dreams, and the goals that you've set in your life. How, how, I mean, literally, how much of our prayer is really giving a list to God of like, these things would actually be helpful. These are ways in which I could use your help to grow in the way that I've mapped out for myself to grow we somehow end up making God serve us and that's a subtle way of, of making an idol out of ourself and making God less than self. And the heart of humility is to say, no, God, you need to become greater in my life. You need to be glorified in my life. I will become nothing. All my plans, all my agendas, my dreams, my goals, Um, even if they're pretty, even if I was 98% there, you can change direction on them. It's okay. They're all all out in front of you, and I don't claim to be anyone or anything. Um, I'm yours. All I want is your blessing. All I want is your your love. Like the, the sinner who stands off to the side, beats his breast and says, God, um, I've read all the books. I've heard all the sermons. I know what it is to do right, and I don't do it. I can't even do the things I want to do. I'm so far from being perfect or being like your, your hero, God, but I want to I know you. I want to change. I need, I, unless you do this, God, unless you work in and through me, it isn't going to happen. And he's off on the side and the Pharisee's in the middle of the street and he's drawing a lot of attention. You guys want to know why, if you've ever invited me to a barbecue, like I can't stand praying in public and it really trips people up because they're like, you're the pastor. And I'm like, yeah, you're putting me right into that box that Jesus said, don't be in, where prayer becomes about kind of some ceremonial thing. And, And I know I'm just weird and that's not necessarily true and a lot of great pastors pray. I get all jacked up about it though. Like, this isn't, you know what I mean? Like, well, I don't know what's really going on here, but I don't know that it's got God really as the dominant thing. It's more of kind of just this routine, ceremonial, that guy. You know what I mean? And so I, I don't, and it trips people out, and I'm sorry. But I get really wigged out about the ways we can make prayer about other things. I was at a church once where it was like, they would literally plan out prayer as, as the transition piece from this to that and they were like it's got to be this long so that the band can get off the stage and and it it's so it's so messed with my head you know I mean I kind of was <laughs> I don't you know I don't know I'm getting myself in trouble <clears throat> humble yourselves and if you do that if I'm not going to fight for myself What am I going to do with all this anxiety that's been running me 
You know, anxiety spins the merry-go-round on which we live. I wrote that in my journal about 11 years ago. Anxiety spins the merry-go-round on which we live. If I'm not going to spin that merry-go-round, what am I going to do with all that anxiety? God says, I, I got a place for it. I got a great place where you can put that. You just put it in my hands. The just will walk by faith. The righteous will live by faith. You just put that in my hands. You get excited about walking with me. Discipleship, it's fascinating. We treat it as a verb. We need more discipleship. I need someone to disciple me. You know what? Discipleship was always a noun in Scripture. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Christ. You're either a good one or you're a bad one. If I, if I said it this way, you all are musicians. All of you are musicians. That's your identity. Some of you would be like, yeah. And then others of you, like me, would be like, oh, well, then I'm a really bad one. <laughs> I, wow, you know. All of us, if we are in Christ, are disciples. I don't need to be discipled. I need to follow Christ. I don't need the next discipleship book. I need to do what a disciple does or is supposed to do, and that's follow Jesus. Be right at his feet seeking where he's going and where he would have me go. Surrender to him because he's leading and I'm following. But I'm a disciple. It means I get located and my identity comes in relation to him. It's not some kind of a technique I use like, I, like going to the gym and working out. That discipleship is some kind of, kind of formula that I can work out in my life to grow myself into more of a spiritual being divorced from Christ discipleship is who I am. I am a follower of Christ. I'm either following well or I'm not. And in all of these things that Peter's talking about, I can get excited about following because my true life and joy is going to come in following and doing the things that he would have me do. This is fullness of life. To the degree that I'm not doing that, not only do I not manifest discipleship well, but I also don't have fullness of life. And Theology 401 says, man, there's something really beautiful about the good news and about grace. Just be with Christ. Be a part of what God is doing in this world. Join him. Grow up into him. Get to experience that intimacy with him. Whether you ever read a book on spiritual growth or not. We'll close with this last one. Chapter 5, verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that, that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. If we flip over to Second Peter Peter closes 2 Peter by saying this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in John 15, says it's really simple. I am the way. I am the path. I am the conduit. I'm what's, what's gonna connect you to all things about life. 
So much so that the metaphor here is like a vine and you guys are the branches. If you are divorced, disconnected from me in any way, there's nothing that can drive you, grow you, um, or quicken you. But if you are in me, you will bear fruit. Praise God. Amen.